Section 10 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 10, Adderbury and Bolingbroke. The ablest man among the Jacobites who remained in England was Bishop Adderbury. He was born shortly after the Restoration, and the spirit of that period seemed to have entered into his blood. Educated at Westminster under the famous Dr. Busby, and then at Christ Church, Oxford, he became a high churchman and a Jacobite, at a time when Oxford was the centre of the most extreme Jacobitism. Atterbury was one of the chief of a band of Christ Church scholars who were very thoroughly worsted in the famous Boyle and Bentley controversy, which, beginning with the question whether the ancients were superior to the moderns, branched off into a dispute about a book which Boyle edited as a classical work and Bentley proved to be a modern forgery. The Honourable Mr. Boyle was put forward as the nominal champion upon the Oxford side, but his weapons were believed to have been prepared chiefly by Atterbury, then Dean of Christ Church. The reign of Queen Anne was a pleasant time for a high church Tory like Atterbury, and he rose rapidly, held several deaneries in succession, until near the end of the reign he was made Bishop of Rochester while he still held the office of Dean of Westminster. More of a wit than a divine, Atterbury was an eloquent and graceful preacher, and he made a great impression on the House of Lords by his powerful speeches. Always ready for controversy, he was too much of a partisan, too much of a politician, to be a good bishop. Had he not been in orders, his talents would have brought him to the front rank of statesmen. But he would have been more distinguished for his zeal and courage than for his wisdom. Atterbury was the bishop who, on the death of Queen Anne, offered, if he could procure a sufficient guard, himself in his lawn sleeves at Charing Cross to proclaim her brother as king. When the ministers, though friendly, declined his offer, he is reported to have exclaimed with an unepiscopal oath that the finest cause in Europe had been lost through want of spirit. When George I came, Atterbury took the oaths to him, but all the while remained Jacobite at heart. No oaths could prevent him from engaging in correspondence with the pretender. In 1722, proof was discovered of this, and he was committed to the Tower, where he was treated to great severity. In spite of a very eloquent defense, a bill of pains and penalties was passed against him. He was deprived of his bishopric and sent into exile. A bill of pains and penalties is not a just measure, for it makes Parliament into a law court instead of a legislature. If Atterbury had broken the laws, and there was sufficient evidence to convict him, he should have been tried in an ordinary court. Many thought that the evidence was insufficient, but it has since been fully proved by the publication of Jacobite letters that Atterbury was all the while engaged in treasonable correspondence. Bishop Atterbury was one of the poet Pope's most intimate friends. Indeed, in the world of letters he may be said only to have a place on account of the literary counsel that he gave to the poet. Curiously enough, while Atterbury was in Calais on his way to exile, 
another even more brilliant sharer of his views chanced to be in the same town, returning from exile to England. Both of them were friends of literature, notably both of them intimate with the poet Pope, who remarked, This nation cannot regain one great genius but at the expense of another. But Atterbury had yet to taste the bitterness of the cup of the ingratitude of princes. Bolingbroke had drunk it to the full. After the failure of the attempt in the fifteen, which was undertaken contrary to Bolingbroke's advice, James had dismissed Bolingbroke from his service without assigning a reason and with a certain amount of contumely. From the time of that dismissal, filled with a bitter contempt for the prince, Bolingbroke worked hard to bring about his own restoration to England. But for seven long years, his efforts were unavailing. At length, it is said, through bribing the king's mistress, Bolingbroke obtained a pardon, which enabled him to return to England with his person secure. Two years later, his estates were restored to him by an act of parliament, reversing to that extent the act of attainder. He was then, according to his own expression, two-thirds restored, my person safe, and my estate with all the other property I have acquired secured to me. But his seat in the House of Lords he was never able to regain. He professed to have retired in disgust from public life, but his pen was always at the disposal of the Tory party, which he constantly strove to rescue from the imputation of being entirely Jacobite. Bolingbroke would most gladly have taken office under the House of Hanover if he could have returned to politics and been accepted as the leader of the disorganized Tories. During his enforced retirement from political life, Bolingbroke lived on terms of the greatest intimacy with Pope, who calls him his guide, philosopher, and friend. It is even said that Bolingbroke supplied the ideas of the Essay on Man, the fallen statesman took a house near Pope's villa at Twickenham. Little wonder that the poet proudly boasts, There my retreat the best companions grace, Chiefs out of war, and statesmen out of place. Their singin mingles with my friendly bowl, The feast of reason and the flow of soul. When Lord Bolingbroke found that he could not obtain the reversal of his attainder, literature gained the energy that would otherwise have been devoted to politics. Pamphlets he could always write, and those that he published were bitter against Walpole. Bolingbroke's most important writings are The Idea of a Patriot King and Letters on the Study and Use of History. Of his compositions it may be said that the language is always beautiful, whilst through the matter there often appears an air of insincerity. His idea of a patriot king is opposed to the idea of constitutional monarchy. He maintained that the king should himself govern and not the ministers. A king ought to set himself entirely above party and be at liberty to choose his ministers irrespective of the party to which they belonged. It was easy for Bolingbroke to rail against party spirit. He had tried it and knew its hollowness. The book, however, may be considered as having done some mischief because of the influence which it exercised on the mind of George III. Imbued with Bolingbroke's ideas, 
he made the attempt to be a king and above party, and the results of his interference with constitutional principles were not of such a character as to lead to its repetition. End of section 10.